Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike. Check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study. The person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean? And welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palouse. We are so excited and happy to have you here with us. I am one of your hosts, Melissa Palou. Um, my uh, co-host and husband, Devin, is um, not with us today. He is actually um, taking care of our daughter as we are uh, pretty much snowed in due to the uh, the pretty bad snow and ice storm that we've had here in uh, the Carolinas, which is very atypical for us, and um, <clears throat> there's a lot of ice on the ground and uh, not, a, a, you know, a lot of um, equipment out getting the uh, ice stuff, and so people are pretty much stranded inside, so we are blessed, though, to still have power to be able to do the show today um, and to be with you, and we have an excellent show um, planned for you today, and we're so excited um, that you joined us. Um, I would like to start our show today with just a quick word of prayer. I'm just asking the Lord to be with us during our time together and to open our eyes and to teach us and guide us in this truth. Um, Dear Lord, uh, we thank you so much for your mercies, for your grace, for the gift of salvation, and we um, know that we did nothing to deserve uh, this gift that you've bestowed upon us, but we are so I'm grateful um, that you are a God of of love and truth and mercy and justice, Lord. Um, Lord, we want to uh, thank you for keeping people safe throughout the um, the region um, as as there's various weather conditions that um, are affecting uh, our country, and we pray that you keep people safe and out of harm's way, and that you um, protect those who are out 
and about trying to restore power and to keep the roads safe and our emergency um, responders and policemen and firemen and those who have to be out in the weather, Lord, just watch over them and um, just keep them safe, Lord God. We want to lift up the show to you today, and we want to ask that you, um, first and foremost, be glorified and honored through everything that we say and do, Lord, um, because everything is about you, and the goal is to bring uh, believers um, closer to you, um, that we are more equipped to defend your truth and to share our faith with others, and Lord, that those who are listening who may not know you um, may hear something that triggers um, some curiosity or some things that they may want to learn more about, Lord, that they ultimately may um, come to know you for who you truly are. We um, pray for our special guest um, today, Lord, and pray that you give them clarity and uh, give all of us ears to hear um, from you. And we thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, that you've given us. We don't take it lightly. It's in the name of our son, of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. And um, again, we are so thankful to have you um, here with us for Theology Matters today. And we are so grateful to have our very special guest with us today. Um, who happens to be a really good friend of ours who uh, we are so excited um, not only to um, to just to interview so that we all get this wonderful information, but because we um, truly enjoy his friendship and the times that we get to talk with him and to pick his brain and um, the the Christian fellowship. So we're very excited for the show today. Um, but our, our special guest today is Dr. Wynn Cordelin. And Dr. Cordelin is a professor emeritus of philosophy and religion at Taylor University. Uh, he's the author of several books. Um, the philosophy of religion book, I'm sure many of you have heard of, that he co-authored with Dr. Geisler, um, which was um, a book that helped us tremendously and that we use as a, a textbook in a, a couple classes that we took at SES. Also, Neighboring Faith, No Doubt About It, um, The Case for Christianity, um, uh, book Islam, a Christian introduction. Also, he wrote, and today we're going to be actually discussing his new book, which is entitled "In the Beginning, God: A Fresh Look at the Case for Original Monotheism." And um, this is a very interesting read, and I know that this is going to be a very wonderful discussion, and that you all are going to learn so much today from Dr. Cordelin. Um So, Dr. Cordelin, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Melissa. First of Hi. all, let me. Let me just say that you're just getting a little taste of Indiana with your weather. Oh, and man. So, <laughs> so yeah, this uh, is a... I'm having a hard time feeling sorry for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you live with us all the time, huh? Yeah. It's so funny because, well, um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, it's this winter has been unbelievably severe even by Indiana standards over the last 20 years or so. Today is the first day in several weeks that the temperature has gone above freezing. Wow. So many nights it's been below zero. It's been just really uh, Mm. a a test of one's fortitude. Right. (laughs) Not fun for sure. Yeah, we, um, again, you know, we're not used to this. And so we, you know, we get a, a, a snow maybe every other year or so, but definitely not a continuous snow that really, um, that really sticks. Um, 
and again, our roadways are really hazardous right now, um, and a lot of accidents and that are being reported. Um, but, you know, it's so funny. We've been snowed in for two days now, and I'm just getting a little stir-crazy. <laughs> so um, we're so used to being out and about, and, you know, we've had to cancel a few ministry events and that kind of thing that we had planned for the week, but that was okay, um, you know, for people's safety. But, um, you know, being those who are usually on the go, it's been a, a little difficult to be still, but, you know, I think God in his sovereignty and his, um, you know, wisdom knows what's best for us, obviously. So um, this is this has been a precious time as well with my family. Good. <laughs> yeah, and so, Dr. Corbin, tell us about, about you and your family and, you know, your life and, and these sort of things. Maybe, um, maybe how you came to Christ, um, whatever information you'd like to share in that regards as well. Well, sure. Doesn't everybody like to talk about themselves? <laughs> yeah, I was born in Germany in 1949, so that was in the post-World War II years, uh-huh. and uh, spent my early childhood then in a country that was in a rebuilding state. Uh-huh. Then when I was 13, we moved to the United States because my dad got an assignment here working with the German Ministry of Defense. Okay. And then uh, we lived in the Washington area in Sesta, Maryland, actually. And I went to high school here and then to college at the uh, University of Maryland where I majored in zoology, went from there to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for my master's, and then got my Ph.D. in religious studies at Rice University in Houston. Now, to to come back to your, uh, the other part of your question, I grew up in a definitely Christian home. And, uh, I mean, I cannot think back to a time when I didn't know about God and Jesus. And uh, the Bible was always there. And I had my own from an early age on and uh, read it carefully and steadily. When I was about eight, though, I really came to terms with the fact that I was a sinner, and uh, that I needed to uh, have Jesus cleanse my heart, as they say. And so at that point, I made a definite decision and uh, in a children's evangelism service, I asked Jesus to come into my heart and cleanse me and let me be his child. Now, From that point on, I was totally sure of my salvation. Now, I don't think that everybody necessarily needs to be able to, quote, know the time, the place, the hour, and so forth. The important thing is whether you trust Jesus or not. Right. But, you know, for me, there was that particular point that I can look at as you know, whether I confirmed something that was true already or if it really was a first start 
you know, I really can't say, but the important thing is that from that point on, I had total assurance that Jesus had taken care of my sin, that uh-huh. I would go to heaven, that I was his child, and uh, that's something Martin. that's... Uh, I, I've always been able to think back on recognizing that it wasn't me who cleansed myself, but it was Christ who died for my sins on the cross. Right. Yeah, that's, um, you know, because you do hear um, testimonies. There's Sometimes people have very dramatic testimonies. They live you know, a very worldly life. They may have been addicted to drugs or, you know, had other addictions, and then they came to Christ, and there was this very definitive moment um, in which they knew mm-hmm. that their life had changed. And then there's others, like yourself, who pretty much grew up in a Christian home, but they still also had to come to a time where they did come to, like you said, acknowledge that they are, in fact, a sinner and that they needed a Savior. Um, and sometimes it's not um, a black and white, you know, issue of, oh, this date and this time, but we all know that God did something in our heart, and um, because of the fruit that resulted, you know, afterwards in the change of life. So that's always right. uh, need to hear from various, you know, because there's various testimonies out there um, uh, from, you know, all of us have had different backgrounds and different experiences. So um, that's that's great. Um, so you came here and you. Um, you started studying apologetics, and how did you get into Christian apologetics and, and philosophy of religion and these sort of, of topics? Uh, how I got into apologetics was an intervarsity meeting. Uh, it was kind of a little party. I won some kind of a game. I don't remember what it was, and uh, I got a copy of Paul Little's book, Know Why You Believe. Uh Now, in the beginning of that book, in the introduction, Paul Little uh, talked about how when he had gone to various campuses, oftentimes he would run across students who said, oh, for the first time, I've realized that I don't have to put my brains on a shelf, as it were, and still be a Christian, that there's some rational possibility of defense, of the defense of Christianity as well. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, wow, I would have been one of those people. So I devoured that book, and then... uh, The next year, or the next summer, I worked in a Christian bookstore, and that was around the time that Francis Schaeffer's books came out. And so then I got really caught up in apologetics. I, uh, I was at a conference in my junior year, I think, uh, where Clark Pinnock was speaking. That was uh-huh. at the time when he was still a Calvinist, and a oh, strong wow. apologist <laughs> for Christianity. And uh, <clears throat> I just really appreciated him and 
he was in the process of moving to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. And so that's where I went to study under him. Unfortunately, he was going through changes in his theology by then. But I was yeah. about to study with John Warwick Montgomery and Norm Geisler. Right. Carl Henry and Gleason Archer. Uh, Trinity at the time had a faculty that was a who's who in evangelical circles. And uh, so that really helped me to get what I hope is a pretty good grasp of philosophy and theology. And then from there I went to Rice and uh, I was challenged, obviously, Uh but... uh, in such a way that I could grow. I didn't have to become defensive, but rather I could grow, if that makes any sense. I, mean, mm-hmm. I, had, yeah. I had enough in my arsenal, thanks to Trinity, that I was able to take what there was that was challenging me and build my system, as it were, with it. And so I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity that I got to study at Rice and Uh to write uh, the kind of dissertation that I had hoped I would be able to. And uh, then from there, I went to my first and only full-time teaching job, Uh which was at Taylor University for 31 years. Uh And I got to uh, teach... uh, across quite a variety of different areas, world religions, New Testament, various mm-hmm. philosophy courses, like history of philosophy, philosophy of religion, logic, and so forth. And right. uh, so my learning did not stop since I had so many subjects to cover, particularly world religions, which was right. my weakest area at the time. So I worked wow. probably the That's hardest hard to... on that. And uh, interestingly, then that became the area in which the Lord blessed my work the most. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really become my biggest specialty. Right. So it's yeah. been a, a good experience. Yeah, well, and praise God for you know giving you that desire to study the world religions because I, I do appreciate your work and that you do um, you do it, uh, expose or uh, do a lot of work with uh, with religions that most of us in the West are not that familiar with but that we're having to become more familiar with um, as uh, you know our culture is changing more and more and as um, you know our culture is becoming more and more diverse so um, praise God for your for your work and, and for you know being able to teach students for so long um now that's a blessing to um, be able to shape young minds and uh, to give them those tools to to equip them um, as they're uh, studying and learning. So um, that's that's really great great testimony. So then you 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 teach and then you um, then you start writing books and that. And um, again, I I think I've read all your books. <laughs> um, so that's a, a great uh, a great tool as well to get the truth out. Um, and, and how, how did you, was writing to that, did you intend to start writing or did that kind of grow out of your teaching? Um, yes, 
it uh, it's something that I decided to do right from the start. I mean, having okay. been at Trinity with Norm Geisler, John Warwick Montgomery, and so forth, David Wells, you know, this just this long list. Uh, it, it was a given for me that I would not just teach, but that a lot of my energy would go into further scholarship and writing. And uh, you know, that's very important that one resolves to do that right from the beginning at a liberal arts college, because mm-hmm. if you don't, there's always enough committee work or many other activities to fill your time. And right. So I decided right from the beginning that I was not going to let that drop, and uh, I'm you know, grateful that uh, God let me do that. But that's not necessarily what's being rewarded either to a great extent at uh, liberal arts colleges. I mean, you know, if you write a book, then yeah, it's fine, but uh-huh. uh, you don't, other than sabbaticals, you, know, you don't get time off or load credit uh, for doing scholarship. You know, everybody teaches the same number of credit hours, and if you do write books, then uh, as I said, other than maybe getting a sabbatical, uh, you, you're just on your own to do that. Yeah. And so I'm I'm very thankful that the Lord has given me the strength and energy to do that for that period of time, and right. that He's blessed some of the things that I have written. I mean, you know, there is nothing that gives me goosebumps as much as when somebody that I've never heard of writes to me and said that the Lord has used one of my books or something in their life. I mean, that's just really incredible to me. And I don't know how other Christian authors feel about that, but, you know, here I am after all these decades and... I still get utterly thrilled by that. I, well, it's just uh, miraculous to me. Yeah, I was going to say that's something, you know, your books will live on, you know, far after you have, and um, their impact um, can be felt for generations. So that definitely um, is a blessing that you're able to write, and I know that you, you know, you, you have various health um, health challenges as well, um, but that you're able to pursue and um, persevere through those and, continue to write, and that you have a lovely wife, June, who is um, just a, a wonderful uh, woman um, there to support you as well through um, through your writing and those different ventures as well. <laughs> Makes yes, sure. Yeah, June is just an incredible woman in many ways, and uh, she has always supported my academic endeavors and uh, proofread my manuscripts and supported me as I would have to make time to write and she's never resented it. At least she's never told me that she had. And uh, so I'm thankful for her and uh, 
for all that she has done. I mean, we are, I want to say a team, but that still doesn't really capture it. As it says in Scripture, the two shall be one, and this is life singular, that Uh uh, we are living, and each of us has uh, our own strengths and weaknesses, but uh, we support each other, and uh, it's been good. Well, awesome. I'm glad that we got to introduce our audience to who you are and, and your heart and your passions and your family and these sort of things. I think I, I, we like to, to bring those uh, those issues out and those areas out because I think it mm-hmm. it makes the interview more, more interesting and more personable, you know, as they're dealing with lots of some very heady scholastic material. So I think that that's very beneficial to know who we're talking with, you know, and to share them with our audience. Uh, so thank you for, for sharing all that, that about yourself, Dr. Cordon. Well, thank you for asking about it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's jump into talking about your new book. Um, this is such an exciting book. In the Beginning, God, A Fresh Look at the Case for Original Monotheism. And this is released um, in September. Um, and Dr. Cordon, tell us, about specifically the subtitle, um, which is interesting, A Fresh Look at the Case for Original Monotheism. What exactly would you define as original monotheism? Well, if I'm going to tell you, promise not to say duh or (laughs) some comment like that. Because, you know, (laughs) what it is is simply the idea that the first human beings on earth worshipped the one and only true God who had created them. Uh Okay. Now, if you're a believer in the Bible, you know, Christian, Jew, or a Muslim who believes in the Quran, your reaction may very well be, duh, isn't that what the holy book says? Well, it does. And uh, in that sense, there shouldn't be any question. And... uh, it it sounds kind of weird to think in terms of having to make a case for it. Of course, making a case for it then has to do with addressing the outside world. Uh There are many people in the academy, in fact, the overall consensus is that either we cannot identify the beginning of religion at all, Or if we can, then it's simply a part of human development that Uh uh, typically the opinion is that human religion began on some, quote, primitive level with something like magic or uh, forces in the world around them and then they started to believe in spirits and then in many gods and finally maybe in one god uh, a theory of the evolution of religion and I have to come back to that in a moment but the point is then that yes the Bible affirms that religion began with the one true God And Mm -hmm. actually from the 
point of view of scholarship, we can also show that human religion actually began with people worshiping one God who created the world, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, who has moral standards that people ought to live by. Mm-hmm. So the challenge then is to, to show that this is true not only on the basis of revelation, but since there cannot be two different sets of truths, it's also uh-huh. true from the perspective of uh, science or scholarship. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, when you were saying, you know, don't say duh, I think in our culture, um, <laughs> monotheism, I, I think, is, is definitely under attack. Um, and so it is uh, refreshing to look at these topics and um, really appreciate you um, writing this book for a number of reasons. Um, what would you say is the central um, research question that you're seeking to answer in this book? Well, it's a complicated set of steps that one has to go through. I mean, the first thing you have to respond to is the question of how can you even get there from here? Time right. travel is impossible. I mean, there are no uh, DeLoreans that zip into the future when you hit 88 miles an hour or whatever. There are no time machines. So what could conceivably even count as evidence? And uh, specifically then, the issue has been fought out, as it were, particularly in the realm of anthropology. And so we have to deal with the, the question of how can that conceivably address the question of evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, we can look at different cultures and uh, let's say different cultures that are on various levels of material development. I mean, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you buy into a theory of cultural evolution, but you know, very clearly there were ancient cultures that lived on a Stone Age level, some on Iron Age level, and so forth. And so there is a certain amount of material progress. So... Mm-hmm the best thing to do would be to look at the cultures that seem to show the least amount of deviation from what the original human culture must have been like. Okay. Now, that seems to be a leap uh, and presupposes all kinds of uh, further uh-huh. Uh, issues and, and needs a lot of re- a lot of support, but if you can do that and then show what religion they held, then you can get a pretty good grasp of what the original religion of human beings must have been like. All right. So, so you are. Uh, 
you assume that there are cultures that have not changed very much over the millennia and that are still reflections of what uh, human beings must have been like when they first started to populate the earth. Now, by human being, I am referring to Homo sapiens. I'm not talking uh-huh. about Neanderthals or uh, Pithecanthropus or any of those alleged cousins or uncles or whatever of human beings. Uh-huh. But I'm talking about the genuine article, as it were, Homo sapiens. And uh, we know that they actually have a fairly recent history on uh, paleontological time scale. So uh, regardless of whether you go with a you know, creation or an old earth or a young earth point of view, uh-huh. human beings have not been on earth for very long. And uh, so you try to identify cultures that apparently have not changed all that much. Okay. That uh, when they uh, when they started to migrate away from wherever they were first created, they did not change their culture very much, and then later on were pushed to the various geographic rims by other cultures that migrated and pushed them ahead of themselves. Okay. And so those cultures are the ones that we need to look at. Uh-huh. And they then help us to establish a chronological sequence. Okay. In terms of the development of religion. Okay, take uh-huh. a culture whose only equipment consists of sticks and stones. Uh-huh. and uh, culture who have bows and arrows and spears and pottery and so forth, it's okay. pretty obvious which one has a greater level of material attainment. So right. you also find that the culture that only had sticks and stones has been pushed into the desert or into, you know, virtually uninhabited, (laughs) unlivable territory. Sorry about that. (laughs) Easy for you to say, huh? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, pushed into the the polar ice cap and whatnot. And you look at those cultures and lo and behold, to... uh, a large extent, those are the cultures that happen, quote, to also have a monotheistic religion. Interesting. Now, you see, here's the thing, and this is why I'm saying I'm tackling the case afresh. There are quite a few books, uh, several dozen at least, that argue or that that rather describe 
various monotheistic cultures around the globe. Uh But they ignore part of the very important argument that was made at the beginning of the 20th century by Wilhelm Schmidt, whom we'll have to come back to, who used a method to actually establish that these cultures are also the oldest. Uh I mean, if you just look at, you know, so many cultures have monotheism, so many cultures have animism, that is to say, belief in spirits, so many cultures have polytheism. I mean, you can't settle the question just by counting and so forth, but uh, you have to have a way of sequencing the cultures to know which ones are actually the earliest to the best of our knowledge. Okay. So that that's great. So uh, there's so we've looked back at the evidence um of these early uh um early uh cultures and to look mm-hmm. at the forms of religion that they actually practice. Um and it, it's interesting like you said that so so many of these cultures you're finding were monotheistic, we would probably expect the opposite based on what we hear sometimes in modern scholarship about religion and the evolution of, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So that's very- Let me say a word about the evolution of religion, that entire concept, uh, which, you know, usually includes religion either began with belief in spirits or with magic uh-huh. or magical uh-huh. forces or something like that, then right. moved through various stages up to uh, some of the spirits becoming gods. So you get polytheism, and then uh-huh. one of the gods gets more exalted than the others. So you have henotheism, that is the belief in one, no, the belief in many gods, but worship of one, uh-huh. until you finally arrive at monotheism. Now, if you ask any given anthropologist or uh, scholar in religion nowadays whether they accept the theory of the evolution of religion, excuse me, chances are they are going to say no. That is an old, outdated theory that people don't hold to any longer. But if you look at how they actually address specific religions, it becomes evident that that is still the scheme that they have in mind. So uh, Professor X may say, I do not accept the evolution of religion. But Mm -hmm. then when he talks about, say, Hebrew religion, chances are he's going to buy into the idea that the ancient Hebrews first worshipped uh, spirits living in stones and then had some kind of polytheism and eventually settled into worshipping Yahweh alone. Okay. And same thing would be true with regard to other religions. So even though uh, they don't usually 
these days say that they believe in the, quote, primitive beginnings of religion, per se, when it actually comes to particular cases, that is still exactly the paradigm that they apply. Okay. Okay. And so in terms of um, the main thesis of your book, um, you're, you're basically, you're, you're looking back at, you're going back to the, to the start um, of human culture and, and the forms of religion. So we're, this is basically a look back. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, since the 1960s, at least, this bivalent attitude of uh, denying the evolution of religion as a theory, but implementing it, has become pretty much standard. You know, nobody uh, wants to admit that they actually still think in terms of an origin of religion. Now, okay. why is that? And yeah. I'm going to be so bold as to say that could just be the case because the arguments for original monotheism were so powerful that it was better not to raise the question at all than to try to engage it on the basis of evidence. Now, that's hmm. a heavy claim, but I yeah. think I'm not too far out on a limb by saying that. The, there are two people who really were responsible for advocating the theory of original monotheism. I mean, at that point in time, a Darwinian version of the evolution of religion was reigning, reigning supreme, particularly in Europe and in England under the uh, direction of uh, E.B. Tyler, uh, who taught at Oxford, and uh, a friend or a strong supporter of his was a Scottish writer named Andrew Lang, and early in his career, Lang was a strong proponent of a Darwinian view of religion as well. Then okay. he started to read some of the reports that came from various parts of the world by explorers, anthropologists, which was becoming a new discipline actually at the time, missionaries and so forth. And he mm -hmm. realized that the world over there are these cultures on a low level of material development who hold to monotheism. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he became an outspoken critic of the uh -huh. theory of religious evolution and the, the straitjacketed pattern that it set on the study of religions. But... Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Lang was not able to say with certainty that the 
original religion was, in fact, monotheism. Okay. He was inclined in that direction, but okay. you know, he said, okay, here's one culture that's animistic, one culture that's monotheistic, and uh, I'm really not able to say on scholarly grounds which one is the earlier. Okay. So then the second crucial person came along, and that was the German scholar Wilhelm Schmidt. And uh, he applied what uh, was called the cultural historical method. Okay. And came up with criteria to discern between which culture probably was the older one, and on that basis uh, created various levels, or rather observed various levels of development, and uh, wrote profusely on that subject. Uh, The 12 volumes of his Der Ursprung der Gottesidee, the the origin of the idea of God, which is not available in English. Uh, There are 12 volumes of about 800 some pages each. And he dealt with all these different cultures in detail. Mm -hmm. And uh, then made a very strong case, not only that the earliest cultures had this monotheism, but they also believed that this God had revealed himself. And nobody has read Schmidt. His his books have been ignored, basically. Uh, When you read what others have had to say about him, it's almost invariably a quick dismissal on the basis of stereotypes or having read some of his lesser works very carelessly. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a Catholic priest, a member of a religious order, and uh, the most common uh, reaction to him is, well, you know, as a Catholic priest, what do you expect? He would write a book, or all of his books, in defense of belief in God. Right. But, you know, that's just plain bigotry. And and, uh, he would dismiss criticisms like that. uh, And uh, if people were a little bit kinder and more serious about it, he would say, you know, show me where. I have let my so-called bias interfere with the data. And so, as I said a few moments ago, consequently, the best way to deal with him from the perspective of those whose views on religion and morality do not coincide with belief in God has simply been to call a moratorium on the entire question of the origin of religion and to dismiss him and not deal with the issue on that basis. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so no, so his work was not readily accepted, I'm assuming. Well, because no, the, not, not uh, very much at all. I mean, he had uh, some supporters, and uh, they, they were you know, pushed to the side at all uh, as well. So, yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> It sounds more uh, paranoid than it really is because these kinds of things happen all the time. I mean, it's Uh not just that Christian scholars are being ignored by the academy. Uh, You know, we see the same kind of thing in the intelligent design debate. But, you know, that happens all the time with regard to other topics as well. There's always a ruling paradigm and uh, people who have other views uh, get excluded. But in this particular case, it is especially poignant because uh, we're dealing with such an important issue and the case that he has made, in my opinion, uh, is just overwhelming and uh, you know I I may add there that uh, we've had to make some mid-course corrections Uh, some of the uh, data that he worked with have changed at this point Uh, we know more than he did and so in my book I've addressed those but the bottom line is that they actually make the case for an original monotheism stronger than wow. it was in his day. And and with his work too, um, Dr. Corderman, this wasn't just um, some some summary or some article that he wrote. This was what twelve volumes. Um, well, twelve, yeah, 12 volumes. volumes. And various other full-size books, if you can call them that. Uh, the yeah. best English summary uh, is uh, what he called a manual to uh-huh. teach from. And uh, it's called The Origin and Growth of Religion, uh-huh. Facts and Theories, and it was translated by H. J. Rose in 1931. Okay. Now, actually, there was about the same time as he came out with a second volume of his magnum opus. So uh-huh. uh, there's a whole lot more. Uh, information, but that's the most accessible summary and uh, that contains a fair amount of data, but uh, the the 12-volume work deals specifically Mm -hmm. with specific cultures. So, you know, in the there are several volumes dealing with the specifics of various African tribes mm-hmm. and uh, 
the specifics of, uh, say, you know, the Australian tribes and so forth. Okay. So uh, he's working with very hard data mm-hmm. constituted by reports. And uh, so there, there's not, it's not a matter of speculation or argument on the basis of pure inference. But uh, he's definitely engaged in analyzing the data as in as raw a form as he had access to them. Okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully, um, through through uh, reading your book, others will be inclined to go and research um, William uh, Wilhelm Schmidt into um, maybe his his writings and his research will be resurrected, and um, people will. Uh, We'll get to uh, really look at the intense research that he did that he did do. Yes, yeah, I I really wish that uh, there were some truly ambitious soul who would translate uh, his big twelve volume work into English, but I yeah. I That'd don't be believe that's ever going to happen. <laughs> But uh, uh, but there there would be at least a help insofar as uh, squashing the the many off the cuff, totally uneducated remarks that people make about his work, uh, mm. and uh, you know that's frustrating when you you're looking for good critiques that you can address when you uh-huh. write a book like I did and you can't uh-huh. even find any. Okay, I found right. some, but most of what's been written is just so uh, off-the-cuff dismissive. So I'm hoping and praying certainly that uh, the book that I have written will you know, let People will get people to pay more attention to what Schmidt has said, and that at least among Christians, uh, there'll be a little bit more security on that point. Because, Mm -hmm. as I said, in contrast to other books, I really do focus on the method that he used as well. Right. And not just on the fact that there are monotheistic tribal cultures. And that uh, other people, other Christians, will be stimulated to uh, continue that kind of work. And perhaps it may also uh, help some non-Christian scholars uh, come to a realization that Schmidt was more than just a a priest living in Austria who uh, was just dreaming up theories in order to please his superiors and his students. Right. Now, uh, Dr. Quidwin, in your your preface, you mentioned um, the significance of ethnology and anthropology um, for your studies, and what impact has that really had... um, uh, in your studies uh, in regards to theology and 
biblical studies as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, this was a a definite branching out experience for me, uh, and I'll get to your, your question specifically, but just autobiographically, uh, you know, I had mentioned uh, original monotheism in some of my other books and made a case of it or for it, but uh, I knew that if I wanted to write a whole book about it, I really had to encounter the critics on their own level. And so I really had to steep myself into the writings of uh, other scholars, Schmidt's writings, much, much more than I had before. And uh, then I found out that I really couldn't stop there with credibility, that I needed to go back to the sources that Schmidt and others were using for their theories. And uh, thanks to Google and uh, the other internet sources, uh, the 19th century journals are now available online to a great extent. So it was not nearly as difficult to find all those sources as I had imagined, but the uh, the debate, as I said, took place primarily on the level of anthropology and ethnology. Anthropology, of course, is the study of the human person, and ethnology specifically addresses the cultures, it's roughly uh, synonymous with cultural anthropology. There are some differences, but that's basically what it's about. Now, you would think that if you're going to study early human beings and their religion, you would go into the caves and study paleontology and you know, look at the cave paintings and the implements that people had uh, 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago or whatever, however you want to date the age of the earth. Mm-hmm. But those, those things are not self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the joke, if that's what it is, is that if a paleontologist or an archaeologist finds uh, an artifact that he doesn't know the culture, uh, the, uh, the use for, he says it must be a ceremonial object. And, uh, you know, same thing with, with the cave paintings. People come up with these explanations. Well, this is obviously a shamanistic depiction of people hunting for the animals and uh, they believe that uh, by drawing these pictures they're going to gain spiritual control over the animals that uh, they're going to hunt for and so forth but that's all piffle it's it's just reading various theories into what's there it's exactly the kind of thing that they accused Wilhelm Schmidt of doing 
defending okay. their own presuppositions by uh, re- by putting their own schemes on whatever evidence we have. So right. the much the much more helpful route was to go uh, via anthropology and ethnology. Now, obviously, yeah. there's a risk involved in that presupposition that uh, the cultures on the least developed level are the ones that uh, most closely resemble the cultures of the earliest human beings. And uh, we have to reckon with the fact that they did have to adapt uh, to the various uh, geographical locations that they were pushed into. And so uh, Eskimo culture is obviously very different in many respects to uh, say, Australian Aboriginal culture, Uh but the level on which they live is pretty much the same. Mm. All environmental things uh, being accounted for, they are not all that different in terms of being on a basic hunting-gathering economy. And, uh, you know, same thing with the Tierra Fuegians and uh, uh, the uh, cultures in Central Africa in Uh the deserts there. And so then it's those that we can look at as probably the ones that also have the uh, religion of, or at least are closer to the religion of the earliest human beings. I mean, this is a method that really, in a sense, backfired on those who are advocating an evolution of religion. Uh Uh-huh. Because they were pointing to the so-called primitive cultures uh-huh. and uh, we're saying, look, they're animists, look, they practice magic and so forth. And uh, then if they ran across one that was, uh, that had belief in God, they said, oh, that must have been missionary influence. Uh-huh. Well, as it turned out, uh, yeah, the idea of missionary influence simply did not work out at all. And then by way of the cultural historical method, a chronological sequence could be established. And uh, so the uh, earliest cultures could be identified. Let me add something here uh, just to make sure that we are on the same page. I've used the word primitive several times and uh, I've always said quote or so-called or something like that. Uh, Using, you know, saying that 
the tribal cultures of a certain region are primitive is you know, a non-acceptable expression. It was the expression that was used by the various writers. So I'm trying to qualify it uh, whenever I use it, but that was right. the term that, that was being used historically. And uh, if, if you look at what those people actually practiced in terms of their standard of morality, they were so much more advanced than, uh, at least from my point of view, than uh, subsequent cultures. They right, believed yeah. in, uh, in monogamy, mm -hmm. uh, lifelong marriage, in honesty, right. in uh, sharing what you have, generosity, and so forth. And uh, those yeah, attributes yeah. then diminished Even as the cultures uh, tend towards magic and ritual. I'm sorry? Yeah, I was going to say, even when, I know when we were talking about those early cultures, um, they were worshiping one God, but they also, there was a moral code, correct, that they were living by, that was enforced and that they were, which which is what you're explaining, um, which was um, something that is something that we don't hear a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's really uncanny, and it really was a bomb that, was being exploded in the face of people like Tyler and T.H. Uh, Huxley and so forth, who said, well, these uh, so-called primitive cultures did not have a code of morality. And uh, that, that just does not hold true at all. Uh, Andrew Lang said something like, uh, a statement further from the truth cannot be conceived, or words to that effect. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, to, to cite one example, okay, the, uh, the British took over Australia and uh, you know, made Australia prison colony, brought their, quote, Christianity with them and uh, started to uh, exploit the local population and so forth. And one of the tribe's initiation ceremony, when the young men actually learned about God and what was expected of them and so forth, was observed to begin with a new ritual added. At the beginning of the ceremony, the tribal leader would walk up to each of the young men and make a gesture as though grabbing something from their chest and throwing it away. And uh, they learned that what he was doing was ceremonially re removing the greed that they may have been infected by uh, by their contact with 
the white people, mm. the so-called Christians, the wow. uh, the uh, Australian cultures, at least many of the ones, and particularly the ones that had preserved a strong belief in a single God, uh, had a concept of sharing that if uh, you went out to hunt and you came back with an animal such as a large lizard or something like that, you were obligated to share with those who were not able to hunt or for some other reason needed uh, that kind of nourishment. And that was just ingrained in their culture. And uh, so they, they had a much higher level of moral uh, life than many of the, uh, the so-called Christians, you know, who were just nominally Christian as far as we are concerned, uh, who just took such great pride in their alleged uh, state of morality, their, their high code of ethics, supposedly. Hmm. That's so very interesting. Um, your research, you know, um, I was I stumbled across a quote um, on your blog uh, in regards to this topic um, from uh, I think his name is Joseph Kitagawa. Kitagawa. Um, uh-huh. uh, he wrote the history of, from the history of religion, understanding human experience. And he writes, um, or he quotes, um, "The origin of religion is not a historical question. Ultimately, it is a metaphysical one." So, um, would you say that that pretty much the whole um, science and, and research into looking at these original um, and so-called primitive cultures has pretty much been abandoned for the most part? Yeah, as I said. Uh, there's been a moratorium called on that, as it were, and you know, nobody wants to study, quote, the origin of religion be- for various reasons. And uh, then what do you do with the question of the origin of religion? I mean, that's still a legitimate question, you would think. Well, some people like Kitagawa and Mircea Iliade and others uh, have said, well, what we mean by that is not an event in time, some kind of historical point. Now, I think I'm justified in saying that's a little bit of uh, we defining words because origin surely means a beginning in time. But uh, Kitagawa and uh, others have said that, uh, no, that's not what we mean by origin. We mean uh, the, uh, the fact that it is somehow central to the experience of a human being or something like that. Well, that's answering a question 
or that's giving an answer to a different question. Uh, particularly uh, significant uh, and glaring is uh, the work in that respect by Emil Durkheim, who has been called uh, the father of sociology. He wrote a lengthy book on the origin of religion and uh, for the most part he talks in historical terms now his thesis is utterly unacceptable namely that religion began with uh, the practice of totemism that has to do with dividing tribes into clans and so forth and he keeps pointing to the evidence such as was available to him at the time and says surely all of humanity has had to go through those various stages in order to arrive at the origin of the at, at current religion beginning with totemism as its point of origin but then mm-hmm. he also says of course, by origin, we do not mean the beginning in time. And I'm sorry, that makes no sense. Why? But uh, that's, you know, that's, as I said, what has happened. Uh, people do not ask the question, what is the origin of religion or how did religion evolve? But their assumption is still, if it's rational at all, it, it's still on the side of evolution or evolution-like development of religion. And a lot of these things that, are, that have been said by someone like Kitagawa are simply maneuvers to uh, okay. no longer deal with the uh, the data as Wilhelm Schmidt had assembled them. I mean, yeah. it's not, not just that they uh, give a different interpretation to his data. They just do not yeah. even deal with the data. They make offhand dismissive comments of his method but do not supply a method to take its place and so we have uh, outstanding anthropologists uh, like Paul Radin who has done some tremendous work with Native American tribal cultures and religions, particularly the Winnebago's, and uh, he just uh, dismisses uh, the method and the results in absolutely cartoonish form. And uh, it's just a shame that, you know, even if he dealt with the data and said, no, at this point, Schmidt misunderstood something that anthropologist X said in his report. You know, that would be one thing. 
but just to say, no, we may not look at any culture beyond what we presently see. That's, to me at least, just not acceptable from a scholarly perspective because every culture comes with a history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Cordon, we, um, in the, we, the few minutes we have left, um, probably about 12, 13 minutes, let's talk about um, maybe what are some of the main things that you want people to take away from your book, um, maybe some of the what you hope um, to be the impact of this book, um, you know, maybe in within the world of Christianity in general, maybe in the world of scholarship in general. What are, what are some of your thoughts on that? Or, in, you know, and then some of the main takeaways from your book. Well, I think the main thing has to do, or my main goal has to do with Christians. I mean, I know who's going to read the book, and uh-huh. it's not going to be primarily non-Christian professors of apologetics all over the globe. Yeah, that would be wonderful if they did, but I know what the reality of the thing is. And so I'm first of all concerned for Christians that they are encouraged and helped in holding their ground. As I said, the Bible teaches that the first religion of human beings was monotheism and we can hold on to that without feeling like we're being uh, uh, academically somehow inferior. In fact, uh, so even if you don't read the book, you just... Uh, know that there is good reason to believe that the Bible is right on that point. Uh, so uh, so that's, that's the first thing that I want to, to see happening. Uh, right. That even, even more than some of the other books like Don Richardson, Eternity in Their Heart, even if you dig deeper on a scholarly level, the evidence for an original monotheism is there. Okay. And then uh, secondly, I'm hoping that Christians will actually read the book and come to understand the nature of the evidence and the fact that it involves, as I've said, not just looking at ancient cultures, or looking, I'm sorry, looking at cultures on a lower level of material development, but also being able to assign relative dates of how they reflect original human culture. That it's not just a matter of pointing to various cultures, but seeing that those cultures have... uh, history and uh, we can tell which are the older ones so uh, it's not not just 
parading the cultures, but ranking the cultures in terms of age. So, and then anyone who's really serious about apologetics, I hope yes. will go that one step further and actually uh, come to understand the culture, uh, I'm sorry, the method, and that it has not been superseded and actually apply the method to the cultures as we encounter them today and uh, as they were described in the reports of late 19th, early 20th century uh, anthropologists. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, some things have changed and so in light of some of the newer knowledge we have, uh, we need to uh, continue to do the work that Schmidt did and uh, apply it to some of the new information that we have nowadays. So I'm hoping that that will happen as well. And then right. I'm hoping that maybe some of that as uh, Christians are working in this area on a rigorous academic level, that they may have some influence in the academy as well. Now, it's going to be an uphill struggle for sure, but uh, it's going to be a true victory for the kingdom of God if there are going to be in the next 10 years one or two genuinely evangelical Christians working in anthropology, sociology, ethnology, that field, and are defending uh, Schmidt's thesis as amended uh, on a scholarly basis. Those fields are very, very difficult for an evangelical to have a voice in. And uh, when I'm saying it would be wonderful to have one or two genuinely evangelical teachers doing academic work in those fields, contributing on a genuinely scholarly level, uh, I am not exaggerating. There, you know, there are some, you know, there are missionaries who are teaching some of these things in seminaries. Wow. And there are some uh, folks like uh, Rodney Stark at Baylor who advocates original monotheism. Uh -huh. but unfortunately does not really represent what you and I might call a, a full-blown evangelical view on the uh -huh. Bible. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Stark is a good Christian, and I'm looking forward to seeing him in heaven and so forth, but uh, uh -huh. coming, he does not come from a... Uh, 
full evangelical perspective that accepts say, the inerrancy of scripture mm-hmm. and uh, I would love yeah, we... to see that we make new ground that we break new ground in those fields coming from genuine uh, evangelical presuppositions yeah it no it I think we do as evangelicals we do get very um timid and somewhat um intimidated when discussing history and religion um uh, you know in terms of you know just all the different things that are thrown at you and what about the other um the other gods that are mentioned or the the other gods that resemble Jesus and all these other kind of um, historical um, questions that are kind of thrown at Christians, and we do tend to cower when it comes to those things. Um, so I'm really, really appreciative for your work in the in these areas, Dr. Cordelin, um because we do need to be more confident um, as we're sharing our faith, and that we know and that our faith is not um, some new invention, <laughs> but um, right. that uh, you know, God, our Creator. Has um, has written his law in our heart, on the heart of every man, and that his truth has has been passed down from the beginning. Right. Yeah. And you know, there there are two factors there. One is, as you say, timidity, uh-huh. and uh, the other is uh, that, uh, for various reasons, uh, we have not done our homework, so to speak. Uh, We just have not uh, been vocal enough or rigorous enough or whatever in just stepping in and uh, doing solid scholarship. Uh, And, you know, there, there are many psychological reasons for that, I guess. But uh, we we do need to uh, continue to study and to disseminate what we have learned. And uh, I guess what's important there also is not to seek the approval of non-Christian scholars. Right. Uh, that... Uh, you know, as I said, I know who's going to read my book. And mm-hmm. so my first goal is to educate Christians. Right. If I, you know, if I needed to write, wanted to write a book that gained scholarly acceptance in the various universities around the globe, mm-hmm. then I would have to pretty much compromise and I don't want to do that well consequently chances are they're going to treat my book the way that they treated Wilhelm Schmitz but I'm hopefully helping Christians uh, in their defense of the faith and uh, stimulating more research and hey I'm I feel blessed if that's what happens Mm, that's great. Yeah, and that's a great perspective, you know, and a great outlook because, you know, I think you brought, you know, you brought up something here. I'm not directly related to the topic, but uh, many times um, Christian scholars, they do um, kind of go into 
the academic world and, and they start writing books and to gain notoriety and popularity within the, the academic institutions, they will tailor the message and they will compromise, um, you know, and they will kind of cut out the miracles and they will apologize for things in the Bible that are, are there. Um, so I appreciate your approach in dealing um, with this topic and with all your topics um, and having, you know, an intended audience and not and whoever reads it, you're not changing the message and, and the research to suit and to become popular with the, the academic institution. So um, I really, um, that's very, um, you know, very, you know, wonderful of you to have that perspective. Well, thank you. Thank you. As yeah, I said, the, it's a blessing to be able to do that. Absolutely. Well, you know, I know there's not, you know, a lot of money in that and, you know, not a million bucks swarming your way for doing that, for your no. research in that. <laughs> Um, because of the audience and because of the work that you're doing. But just know that there are people like myself and those who are listening and, and many of our friends that we have come to know and, and throughout the country who are benefiting from, the, from the, you know, the work that you're doing and that many other um, apologists are doing um, to strengthen our, our faith and to give us a bolder witness because these tools are ultimately, ultimately for that, and they do help us in our day-to-day interactions with people. Um, as they're, you know, I, I just, I see we're, we're, we're being blessed at this time in our nation and that we're, we're able to have more and more dialogue when it comes to the area of religion and God's existence. I think people are becoming um, more vocal um, because the opposition is becoming more vocal. So um, it's really given us opportunity to have these kind of discussions. And so without these resources, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't have the confidence to go into these discussions. So, um, again, very, very appreciative. Um, you know, and I know the, the rewards in heaven will be great <laughs> um, well, for the research and the time that, that you put into this. Thank you. And i sure I'm appreciative of being able to share some of this on your show this evening. Thank you so very much. And this show is available for podcasts so people can download it for forever <laughs> and hear this wonderful <laughs> material. And hopefully people will snap this book. Please, uh, I encourage you to, to get this book. It's available. Um, I, you know, I saw it on Amazon. And other, other places that it sold, Dr. Dr. Cordwin, that people could get the book um, that you would it's recommend? available anywhere. It should be in okay. all the Christian bookstores. If not... Uh, yeah. Ask yeah, them about it and on Amazon yeah. and all the various booksellers on the web. So it's and we'll put the book um on our um our Facebook page on the Theology Matters um show Facebook page I just put, also posted in the chat room. Um the name of the book is In the Beginning, a fresh case at a fresh look at the case for original monotheism by Doctor Winthrop Cordelin. Um, and so, again, Dr. Cordon, we thank you so much for taking the time to come here um, to be with us to share this evening. Um, and we uh, will uh, continue to spread the word about this wonderful book. And we look forward to seeing you at more apologetic conferences and, and that as well, you and, you and your wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Melissa. Pass my greetings on to Devin. I will. And, uh, I sure have enjoyed this chat. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Cordwell. You stay warm. (laughs) Okay, thanks. You too. God bless you.
Goodbye. Well, folks, um, we have just had such a wonderful um, discussion today with Dr. Cordelin, and we thank you all for joining us um, for this discussion and um, hope that you uh, spread the information along. Um, you know, you can go back and listen to the podcast because there was a lot of great information shared. Um, so definitely go back and, and listen to the podcast again, post it, share it, um, and definitely, again, grab the book in the beginning, the case, a first look at the case for original monotheism. And um, we look for, if you have any questions as well um, following up uh, regarding the show or any follow-up comments or questions, feel free to also email us at theologymattersradio at gmail.com. And as, uh, make sure that you also like our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Palouse. And uh, we post a lot of articles throughout the week on our Facebook page as well as the podcast to all the shows. And you can go back and listen to uh, on, on shows on a number of different topics. So we, um, again, are so thankful that you joined us and hope that you join us again next Thursday at the same time. And pray that you all have a blessed week and uh, keep spreading the truth and keep uh, getting equipped, and to God be the glory. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit He's the king, the priest, and the prophet So please watch as we proceed with the topic uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology That phrase alone, they give some people allergy uh, They say it's not practical enough uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian is not optional Cause when you talk about Christ you're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.